Hello and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam Etris and I'm part of the Ridge team here in Morgantown. As Christ followers, we can often wonder, what will heaven be like? Will we be busy or bored? Will we know our loved ones? Listen as Pastor Tim brings a talk from the series Homecoming, where we are exploring what the Bible has to say about heaven. We hope that this talk will encourage and inspire you as you grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning again. Uh, Over the years, I've run into a few people, probably four or five people that died and then came back again. Uh, Two of the people I met over the years had particularly interesting stories. Both of them were ones that um, I believe their death was attested to by the attending physician or others in the room, and then they came back again. But there seemed to be no doubt that they had actually died, and I think both cases had even been pronounced dead, but then they came back again. Now, one of those individuals was a boss I had, one of the first bosses when I worked at the florist. He was the guy that owned the florist shop that I've talked to you about. And the second uh, one was this woman. She was about 20 years of age. I was on campus or near the campus sharing the gospel with college students, and I was talking with this guy, and she walked up. She knew the guy, and as we were talking, she began to explain her story. And when I found out that this had happened to each of them, I asked them, did you experience anything while you were out? And both of them, without hesitation, said yes. Uh, My boss then, I, I proceeded to say, well, what did you see? I mean, what did you experience? And at this point, his expression immediately changed. And with anger in his voice, he said, I don't want to talk about it and I don't want you ever to bring up this subject again. Now, I I don't know what he experienced, but apparently it was something that was not very good. You know, something that I I sensed it scared him, whatever whatever he experienced. He just didn't want to talk about it. Now, he knew I was a Christian, and he went on to add, of course, that doesn't mean that there's an afterlife. He said, I still believe that when you die, that's the end, but... And I said, well, how do you explain what happened? He said, oh, I can't. I don't know what happened. But he was scared. Uh, The woman's experience was entirely different. She described how she actually felt herself leave the body. She looked back down on the table. She saw herself there. She ended up in this, this place that she could hardly describe, only with some colors. And then all of a sudden, it, it just happened real quickly. She was back. But it raised in her mind the question, what happens when you die? Now, this girl's sister had been a Christian not long before this incident happened, and the sister had been trying to share Christ with her. She had not been interested, but after this happened, she became very interested. She talked with her sister, began to read her Bible, and in time, she came to put her faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there are a lot of people that have stories like this. You know, in fact, there are books that have been written about it, people that sit down with those that, you know, were medically, you know, determined to be dead and came back and they had their stories. And, and some of the stories are pleasant. Some of the things people describe involve colors and sounds that are just otherworldly, but other stories are scary, kind of like, I think, what my boss probably experienced. This boss, by the way, um, I w- now this is an 18-year-old perspective, but at the age of 18, I felt like this boss was the most ungodly person I'd ever been exposed to in my life. And he hated me, not because of the way I worked or anything, but he, he knew I was a Christian, and he did not like Christians. 
And so he'd, he'd call me names. He'd say, you're just a goody two-shoes. I irritated him, you know, by being kind of, I don't know, churchy or something there. I wasn't trying to be, but he, he, he could not stand me. Well, today we're going to begin this new series called Homecoming, and I hope it's a series that's interesting. I hope it's helpful. I hope it's motivational. But I think it's an important subject because we read in the New Testament that we need to fix our hope on some of that that's coming. Specifically, that if we fix our hope on that day, when we as believers in Christ will see Christ face to face and we're changed and forever we'll be with him, it will impact how we live in the present, as I was alluding to when I was talking about communion. John wrote about this in 1 John 3, 2 and 3. He said, dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. In other words, a lot is out there. We just don't know. More is coming. We know this, though. When he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. We'll be just like Jesus with his glorified body. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What a tremendous promise that if we focus on this, I don't mean that we're to be otherworldly in our thinking all the time, but when we're mindful of the fact that this is not it, that there's more to come, and one day we're going to be with Jesus, it is going to impact how we live our lives in the present. Now, the subject of heaven raises lots of questions, like is it a physical place or is it just a spiritual place? You know, and, and what exactly is heaven going to be like? And, and who's going to be in heaven? Who's not? And why? Are we going to be bored in heaven? Will we have wings? Do we have to learn to play the harp? I sure hope not. They say it's hard. What's it going to be like? How do we store up treasure in heaven, as Matthew said to do? Well, these are some of the things we're going to be addressing. There are a lot of misconceptions out there, unbiblical ideas. In fact, next week's talk, I want to explore some of the unbiblical ideas related to this particular subject. But this morning, I want to address one main question, and the question is why? Why heaven? Why should there be a need for a place called heaven? Now, before I answer the question, I, I want to give you some definitions. You know, I'm using the word heaven. You wonder, what, what do I mean by heaven? Uh, the word is used in different ways in the New Testament. Uh, in at least three different ways, it refers to a place. It's used in a fourth sense, which I'll mention in a minute here. And, and in the fourth sense, it's not a place. But I think the American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language gets this correct when they list these three ways in which the word is used in the New Testament. First of all, it refers to the sky or universe as seen from the earth, the firmament. This is what's talked about in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you got the earth down here, you have the heaven up there. It's where the stars and the moon and the sun are located in heaven, or the heavens. The second way that it's used is of the abode of God, the angels, and the souls of those granted salvation. This is called the third heaven in Paul's writings. It's where God is. Now, God is everywhere, of course. But in the Bible, there are occasions where he has a localized presence. And God himself has said, my throne is in heaven. In the Old Testament, of course, you remember that he had a special presence near the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. And, and so when we talk about heaven, sometimes we're talking about, well, that's where God is. That's where the angels are. That's where people go when they die. And then the third way it's used is as the eternal state of communion with God, everlasting bliss. 
And this is a reference to our final destination. This one's a little bit ironic because we do talk about people being in heaven forever, but I say it's ironic because as we're gonna see in this series, our future destiny is not up in the clouds someplace. It's on a new earth that God's gonna create. He's gonna create a new heaven and a new earth. So oddly, spending eternity with God in heaven is spending eternity on a glorified, fixed earth. And so to summarize again, heaven either refers to the abode of the sun, moon, and stars, it refers to where God and his angels are and where believers go when they die, they go to heaven, we talk about that, or it could be this eternal destiny. Now there's another way in which the word is used in the New Testament, and it's not referring to a place. Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven. And so when you read that expression in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, well, the kingdom of heaven is like a seed that was planted. Kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that was buried, things like that. It's not talking about heaven. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is a euphemism, and it means kingdom of God. In fact, the other Gospel writers call it kingdom of God. It's a reference to the fact, an invisible kingdom in which God rules over everything, especially in the hearts of his people. Now you say, well then why did Matthew talk about the kingdom of heaven? Well, he was writing to a Jewish audience and they did not like to either say the name God or write it out. In fact, to this day, a devout Jew will not spell out G-O-D, the O, they'll put a line there. And the reason they're doing that is to protect the sanctity of that name. They don't want to accidentally say the name or write it and get something wrong. And so to do that, they came up with the euphemism, you know, the kingdom of heaven. Or we talk about for heaven's sake. Well, that means for God's sake. It's just another way of saying that. But that's different than what we're looking at. And most of our time in this series is going to be on the second two usages of this word. What happens when people die? Where do they go? And then what's this eternal destiny that we're going to have? So it brings us back to the question, why? Why is there a need for such a thing? And the simple answer is this. This world is broken. It's it's under a curse because of the original sin of Adam and Eve. You know, God told them, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. The day you eat of it, you'll die. And death came upon all of creation in that moment. Everything came under this, this, this curse of death. And Paul wrote about the fact that in the present hour, all of creation is groaning. You know, it's just groaning. And so are we. You know, you can kind of sense it. He wrote about that in uh, first, or I'm saying Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 23. I want to read this section. And I'm gonna interject a lot of comments because I think it's particularly confusing. But beginning in verse 19 of Romans 8, Paul wrote, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. Let me stop for a moment, but when it says God's sons, it's a reference, of course, to sons and daughters. There's a reason he used sons I don't wanna get into this morning, but it's talking about this day when we're gonna be revealed for what we are. We're gonna get our glorified bodies, what he's talking about. So all creation is eagerly waiting with anticipation for that day when we'll finally be in the presence of our creator forever. It goes on to say, for creation was subjected to futility. Now I'll talk about this in a minute. I'll come back to this idea. But it was subjected not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who's that? God. This was a consequence for sin that he subjected it to this futility, and again, I'll talk about that in a minute. And so the, the creation was subjected to this, but not willingly. God is the one that did this in the hope 
that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. In other words, it's pointing ahead to the day when we will get our new and glorified bodies as God's children and then all the creation is gonna be fixed as well. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves have the spirit as first fruits. We also groan within ourselves. That expression, we have the spirit as first fruits, is a reference to an Old Testament practice, part of the Old Testament law, where when the first part of a crop came in, like at the very beginning of the season of reaping, you were supposed to take that first part, some of it, and you offer it to God. But it was, first fruits was an idea that you offer the first fruits to God and then the rest is coming. And what Paul is saying here when he says the Holy Spirit is the first fruits, he's saying that the fact that you have the Holy Spirit points to the fact that more is coming, that that's just the little beginning of all that God has for us, that you've got the first fruits. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul called it a down, to, uh, down or payment, or a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance. And so you know if you buy a house, you know you put down the deposit and then you have to pay the rest later. Well, this is what Paul is writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, when you become a Christian, you put your faith in Christ, the Spirit comes in to live in you, and that's just the, that's a glimpse of what's gonna come because so much more wonderful things are coming. And therefore, as we wrap up the verse, it says, we're eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We're eagerly waiting for this day when things are gonna be made right. In the meantime, though, this world is not as God created it. It, was, it used to be so beautiful, so wonderful. We now live in a world with thorns and thistles and sickness and death and pain and, and suffering and corrosion, you know. I just hate the fact that things corrode. Now, I love the illustration that Paul gives here. He talks about the, this, the, the pain of childbirth. He talks about the birth pains because you know what birth pains really are about as painful as they are, which thankfully I'll never have to experience. But it's hard, right? I mean, those of you that have given birth, I, I've been in the room when my wife gave birth to five children. It was agonizing for me. I didn't feel the pain like she, but it was agonizing. But it was all pointing to the day when this child would be born, this beautiful baby, and then you forget the pain because look it. And that's the illustration that Paul is using here. It says all accretion is anticipating this. A scholar by the name of M.R. Vincent explains that idea of creation anticipating this. He said it's a watching with head erect and outstretched, hence a waiting in suspense. All of creation, in a sense, is holding its breath. And therefore, all of creation, as verse 22 says, is in labor pains right now. That's kind of what it's like. Look at verse 22 again, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains. It's just, it's just hard. There's this corruption everywhere. A Dr. Schelling, who was a German philosopher, he provided a little bit different illustration of what creation is going through plus what we're going through right now. He wrote, nature with its melancholy charm, which is an interesting way to view creation. It's, it has a charm to it, but it's a kind of a melancholy charm. 
resembles a bride who at the very moment when she was fully attired for marriage saw the bridegroom die. She still stands with her fresh crown and in her bridal dress, but her eyes are full of tears. That's, that's a perfect illustration as death came into the world and creation longs for something different. This is why I think Jesus cried at the, the tomb of Lazarus. I've mentioned this before that Jesus knew he was gonna raise Lazarus from the dead and yet when he arrives at the scene, he sees the people crying and this and that. He knew joy was about to come, but it says Jesus wept because he looked around at the brokenness that is here. This, this word's broken. Recently, I had to replace a um, water line at my house. It, it went down from the, the edge of the street where the meter's located all the way up to the house. I have a long driveway, maybe 50, 75 feet or yards. I don't know, it's a long distance. I should measure it out. They had to dig up the whole thing. They had to chew up much of my driveway just to get to it because they had, whoever did that, put the water line underneath the driveway so you got to dig all that up. This is the world in which we live in, brokenness, rust. I hate that I have to repair things all the time because things break. And all of us have, go through a suffering, even physically. It's like, boy, this is hard. We're all deteriorating physically and mentally. It's, it's not... God's final answer, that's why heaven, God has something wonderful in mind, something better in mind. Now, one of the words that God uses to help us understand what this future destiny is gonna be is the word garden. And the word that's used for garden in the Bible is another translation of it is paradise. It's, it's paradise. You remember when Jesus was on the cross there was a guy hanging next to him, a criminal on the cross, and at a certain point he came to understand and believe who Jesus was, and he reached out in faith, which is what, the thing, what saved him. He reached out in faith. Will you, you remember me when you come in your kingdom? And what did God, or Jesus say? Well, it's God too, but what did Jesus say? Today you'll be with me in paradise. The word is, is, is a word for garden. It's the exact same word that's used in the Old Testament for the Garden of Eden. That's why you, Adam and Eve were placed, what? In paradise. So you get this sense about it. Dr. Vincent confirms this. He says originally what it was, paradise was, was an enclosed park or pleasure ground. He goes on to say Xenophan, who was a Greek military leader, uses this word of its parks of the Persian kings and nobles. And so these kings and nobles would come and they'd go to this beautiful and wonderful place, this, this park. And so Jesus said to this guy on the cross today, You'll be with me in this place. And we get some sense what it was like again going back to the Garden of Eden where the word was used only in the Hebrew language. What was the Garden of Eden like? It was a beautiful, wonderful place. Plants, fruit-bearing trees. Even mentions that there was gold there and other precious metals were there. Just beautiful. There were four rivers. There were animals, all the animals that God had created. And you look at this. And you say, well, that's paradise, that's the Garden of Eden. And I believe that that's kind of the place where this guy went, the place God created. It was called paradise. Now, I think it's important to understand that um, I don't believe anyone goes to paradise anymore. The paradise was a temporary place where the righteous dead went. I believe that when Jesus rose from the dead, paradise was emptied. You say, well, why, why that intermediate thing? Because Jesus talks about this in Luke 16, about a, the place of Sheol, a place with two compartments. One of them is, was paradise. 
And that's where the guy went. But it was a temporary holding ground because in the Old Testament, Jesus had not yet died. He had not yet paid for the sins of the world and the sins were not removed. In the Old Testament, the word that's used is atonement. It means that the sin was covered. And, and so before Jesus died and rose again, Old Testament believers, that's where they went, down to paradise. But I believe when Jesus rose from the dead, they ascended because their sin was now removed. They were qualified to be in the presence of God. And the Peter, or Paul, the Apostle Paul affirms that. He says, absent in the body now means being present with the Lord because you put your faith in Christ and now you're qualified to be in the presence of God. So you say, well, then why are you using paradise or a garden as an illustration of the future that's to come? Well, because that's what God uses to describe it. You go to the book of Revelation, you see a fulfillment of all that was there in the Old Testament about the Garden of Eden. You see a re renewed Garden of Eden in the book of Revelation. It's a reference to our future destiny, which illustrates to me that heaven or our eternal destiny is not some cloudy place. If you love this place, figure out some place that's a hundred times better. I think that's what we're dealing with. And so in Revelation 21, we read these words. Then he showed me the river of living water, sparkling like crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, who is Jesus, down the middle of the broad street of the city. The tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing of the nations. There'll no longer be any curse. It goes on to talk about no sickness, no, no crying anymore. Just as beautiful place as garden. This is, the, this is paradise. And this is, I believe, the future home of those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. Now, this garden idea is probably the thing that actually helped lead C.S. Lewis to faith in Christ. When he was a boy, and this is found in his book, Surprised by Joy, but when C.S. Lewis was a boy, his older brother made a little garden for him. He used the lid of a, a cookie tin. He just took the lid off, and then he put moss there and some sticks and whatever, and he created this little garden. And for C.S. Lewis, he said it was, it was like magical. He said it allowed him in his imagination to go this, to this amazing, mystical place that, that's not really reflected in a real garden, but he said there must be this other place. He concluded this idea and he was a very smart person, but he concluded this idea that the very fact that he had this longing for a place that doesn't exist, that he doesn't even know about, but he has such a strong longing, demonstrates that it probably exists. He said these words, creatures are not born with desires until satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. Otherwise, why would you have hunger, you know? A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. See, even the Garden of Eden didn't do an adequate job of showing what this wonderful future place, but he said, the, this, the fact I have this longing suggests there must be something there. Why else would I, why wouldn't I just stop with this little play garden? No, his imagination took him further. He thought there must be something more. He also concluded that nothing in this world satisfies, and here we come back to that 
word vanity. Earlier, I talked about how everything in creation was subjected to vanity. What does that mean? Well, you go to the writing of Solomon, who was, apart from Jesus, probably the, the smartest man, wisest man who ever lived. And he wrote an entire book on this subject called Ecclesiastes. He, he was a guy who had everything and discovered that nothing satisfies. He had so much wealth, I think he's the wealthiest guy who's ever lived since the beginning of time. I say that only because in his day, silver in Jerusalem was like stones. Nobody valued it. He had so much wealth that devalued everything else. There's so much of it, nobody cares. It's, it's not worth anything anymore. Nobody wants it. There's no scarcity. He was that wealthy. Yet he said, you know, it doesn't satisfy. He built all kinds of things, including a marvelous temple, but he decided, you know, vanity, vanity, everything's vanity, you know. He, he went after education. He went after being smart. He said, you know the problem with being smart? The smarter you are, the more painful it is. Sometimes ignorant is bliss. Maybe you don't want to know. Because he discovered all these things. He said, it just brings pain and suffering. And, and area pleasure, he said, I'll give myself to pleasure. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. All of creation has been subjected to this. And C.S. Lewis saw this. And he said it's particularly prominent among those who are really successful because they achieve their goal and then they get in that spot and then they say, is this all there is? This is what he had to say about it in mere Christianity. It's once people have achieved the utmost success the world has to offer, whether it be in sports, culture, politics, making money, or even in family life and relationships, that they suddenly realize it hasn't fulfilled their deepest longings after all. Worldly things can't satisfy spiritual desires. To assume they can is wishful thinking indeed. Always thinking that the latest is the real thing at last and always disappointed. Could it be that we weren't made for this world? That it's unable to satisfy, it's been subjected to a curse, it points to something different. And the Apostle Paul alluded to this in one of the weeks I want to spend time on this one reference, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. He said, our citizenship is actually in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. That's what we're looking forward to. Now, this morning is merely an introduction. In some ways, it's just to whet your appetite, to get you to begin thinking about these things, hoping that it stirs something within you. But I do want to leave you with two applications. One is I hope throughout this series that some of you will find Jesus Christ because he is the answer. He's the one that defeated sin and death. He's the one that defeated the curse. And so he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it requires at a certain point where we recognize our broken condition and realize we can't fix our own brokenness, our own sinfulness. We need a deliverer. We need a savior. And it's why Jesus came into this world to pay the price in full for everything you and I have done wrong. And when he rose from the dead, it demonstrated God accepted the payment, but we need to reach out to him in faith and say, I want you to be my savior. I want to put my trust in you. If you're a Christian here already this morning, I want to encourage you to live in light of the reality of what's coming. This world is not our home. We get too attached to it. We love, love the things of this world. John wrote, if we love the things of this world, the love of the Father is not in us. There's really not the capacity to live in both ways. And therefore, we have to choose our allegiance. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that you've loved us so much as to want us to be with you, to adopt us into your family, that one day you're going to make everything right that went wrong in the Garden of Eden. And so we tell you we're grateful. But in the meantime, Lord, we want to live in a way that reflects that reality. We walk by faith, not by sight. And we're grateful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.